Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> how do? <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. This is episode seven. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Welcome to our third series. I'm Marcus Parks. And I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Oh, yeah. And welcome to the show. Let's get into it. I'm so excited. <laughs> you have no idea. This is the one I'm the most passionate about. Yeah. No, no, no. no. This is your band here. This is this is me. <laughs> in, in the punk UK, you know, even though I've never, obviously not been born in the 70s. Obviously. Or, or, or know much about the British UK, uh, the, the UK punk scene, but... I, I just feel like I relate to it so much. Absolutely. This band I relate to more than anyone. Yeah. Out of all the ones that we've covered, yeah, this band holds a special place in our hearts. And when it comes to the history of British punk, there are usually two bands who take up most of the oxygen in the room when it comes to discussion and reflection. One is The Clash. And I'd assume every single one of you has heard at least one Clash song. Everyone's heard Rock the Casbah. Everyone's heard Should I Stay or Should I Go. Everyone's heard The Clash. The other, whom many of you probably know mostly by name, if at all, because it was so goddamn long ago and they didn't really have any quote-unquote hits, is The Sex Pistols. I like them too. That's the thing. I like them. (laughs) (laughs) 
So for those of you who know absolutely nothing about this band, the Sex Pistols were essentially a group of snotty British working class kids who rode a wave of rage and malcontent into a short-lived career consisting of being the most hated and feared group in all of England. Regular folk were so put off by the Sex Pistols that they were declaring that their sheer existence signaled the end of civilization as they knew it. People fucking freaked out. They were 19. <laughs> they were fucking children. You know, but in a way, you know, those people were absolutely correct. The Sex Pistols did change everything. But the thing about the Sex Pistols and even the Clash is that they're very much of their time. While the long-term cultural impact of the Sex Pistols is incalculable, taking them out of the context of the UK in the 70s sort of downgrades their first and only album from groundbreaking to pretty good. I think it's really good. Okay, really good. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you mean, like because it's hard to relate uh, being a British punk kid in the 70s, but from what I could see from what they were going through is that they were bored and angry and mostly bored angry. <laughs> I think bored angry is very much a way to describe the Sex Pistols and that whole time period. And we're definitely going to get into that time period. But see, in America, bands like the Stooges and Suicide were coming out of the turmoil caused by the Vietnam War. And those bands fed off the psychic reverberations of a country that was just fucking tearing itself apart from the inside. But in the second half of the 20th century, England was coming from the sheer destruction of World War II. See, while our war was fought on the other side of the world, theirs had come with regular barrages of Nazi bombs from the sky. Now, it had been a good 30 years since the days of the German Blitz by the time punk had come around, but the heavy trauma of damn near being destroyed by the Nazis was still very much a part of the country's psyche. When it came to punk, though, None of the people making this music had even been born when those Nazi bombs were being dropped. As such, they didn't give a fuck about rallying around the Queen. All they knew is that for them, life was shit. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. It, it was for them, life was shit in a different way that life was shit for their parents. Exactly. Yeah, life was, with, for their parents, like, at the very, like, they could rally around queen and country. You know, like, there were heroic things happening. You had Dunkirk, you know, where all of the... Churchill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Churchill. Like, you had inspiring figures. In the 70s, you had fucking Margaret Thatcher, like, and a bunch of ineffectual politicians. Naked on a cold day. Exactly. Well, as far as what was going on in England, the virulently racist National Front Party was gaining a real foothold in politics, a recession made it nearly impossible for a lot of people to find work, and even those that had found work were limited to working only three days a week because the British government wanted to save on electricity. It was bad. That is bad. <laughs> like, that's bad. A four-day weekend is bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When you're broke and you don't know what to do. And like they were even saying like these kids growing up, they're in school and they're pretty much told no matter what you do, you're you're just never going to get anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it was very much a situation of like the station you were born into was the station you were going to stay in for the rest of your life. I mean, when the Sex Pistols were singing about no future, that was true. In other words, there wasn't much to be proud of and a lot to be angry about. As a result, the Sex Pistols took the role of a pure beast of rage, while the job of political agitators fell to the more thoughtful, if still aggressive, band of the day, The Clash. <laughs> 
You know, I've been listening to The Clash for 20 years, and I still know only about 50% of the lyrics. <laughs> I mean, White Riot has some amazing lyrics. Like, my favorite lyric from that is, like, everybody's doing just what they're told. Nobody wants to go to jail. That's what it was. <laughs> God, I should start reading the liner notes. I mean, that's still relevant today. However, there was a third band there at the beginning of it all, and that's the band we'll be covering on this series. Yes. This band was just as, if not more important than the Sex Pistols and the Clash. When so it say Carolina and Marcus. <laughs> and so say a lot of other people. Yes. But, but I mean, I, we're going to prove this throughout the course of this series. But that's, you know, that's when it comes to long-term and widespread influence when it comes to music. Pure fucking music. These guys kick-started the Los Angeles punk scene in the 70s, and they helped inspire what we now know as goth. They also have more solid albums than the other two bands combined. The catalog is more diverse, and they're still, to this day, a fantastic live band. They made it all the way through. 40 years! They're the only ones! They're left! (laughs) They're they're still here! (laughs) Everyone else is gone! They played the Warsaw last year! I know! I mean... I wish someone told me. (laughs) We were out of town. I knew about it, but we were out of town. Thank you for keeping that from me. (laughs) Now, don't get us wrong. We're both huge Clash fans, and the Sex Pistols were important discoveries to both of us when we were in high school. Like, I remember driving around in my fucking GMC Jimmy with a boombox in the seat next to me because the radio was broken, playing my Sex Pistols tape over and over and over again. I remember wearing my pleather pants that I bought for as an employee discount <laughs> at Hot Topic, so yes. <laughs> but as I've gotten older, I find that I appreciate this third band more and more. Partly because they were better musicians, but mostly because they're just fucking fun. They were the first British punk band to release a single, the first British punk band to release an album, and they were the first British punk band to bring their music to America. I'm talking, of course, about the damned. Now, the story of the early British punk scene can be told one of three ways, and it really all comes down to taste. If you like a story that's miserable and mean, go for the Sex Pistols. If you want it overly serious and backstabby, go for the Clash. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but if you want pure fucking fun combined with a ridiculous amount of musicianship, then the choice is easily The Damned. And The Damned is by far the one that people neglect to tell. Like, at home, we've got this gigantic book. It's like called Punk, like the whole story or something like that. It's a huge photo book. It's a really cool edition. But The Damned is mentioned four fucking times over the course of, like, 200 pages. It's insane how little respect the damned have gotten over the years. And they're well aware of this. Like, if you yeah. are, like, <laughs> No, I don't want to whine or anything, but... <laughs> like, come on. When you talk... Well, like, when you watch interviews with the members of the damned today, they're always like, yeah, we were there too, fuckers. <laughs> like, not only were we there too, but they're not really shy. They're like, yeah, our albums were better. Like, our live show was better, but we just don't get the respect. And, you know, the reason why the damn don't get the respect, I think partly, at least as far as that book goes, is the damn don't look as quote-unquote cool as the fucking Sex Pistols. And also, they were uh, pretty much considered outsiders from the beginning. From the very beginning. Nobody wanted the damned for some fucking reason. Well, I mean, we kind of know the reason. We really (laughs) actually do know the reason. I mean, they were kind of shitheads. Yeah. They didn't really take a whole, they didn't really take many, the only thing they took seriously was the music. And that's why I have enormous respect for them. And that's why other musicians have enormous respect for them. Like when people talk about the Sex Pistols, they mostly talk about the style. And that's the thing is that the Sex Pistols did look cool as fuck to the cool kids but when people talk about the damned especially other musicians you know musicians like henry rollins jello biafra they talk about the damned's albums well the difference between the damned and i think uh bands like the sex pistols and the clash is because like they weren't so uniformed like the clash were right uh the the damned really comprise like mainly which we're going to talk about mostly are just the four members Mm -hmm. who are all each completely different people, like different uh, styles, different uh, genres, even uh, just different within themselves. They even said so themselves. Like if it weren't for this band, I don't even think we'd talk to each other. <laughs> it's like a family. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, like, like that's the thing is that you always wonder. It's like if she wasn't my sister, would I talk to her? <laughs> like, <laughs> like would we would we be friends outside of like like we would be friendly acquaintances, but would we be friends? And the damned is kind of the same, you know, because you know with the damned on stage, like you had one guy wearing a gigantic fuzzy suit and a beret, and right next to him is a dude dressed like Count Dracula, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then behind him is a guy that kind of looks like another punk and then another guy who kind of looks like another punk as well. But, but he's like studying his guitar like meticulously. <laughs> yeah. Now, even though the damned were definitely immature children for way longer than they should have been, by their own admission, they were solely focused on making good music. And as the 70s turned to the 80s, they continued to grow as a band far beyond the punk rock scene they helped start. And that's the cool thing about the damned. They were always changing. They were always pushing the envelope. They were always challenging themselves to do something new. And it wasn't necessarily like we're going to follow trends or anything like that. It was always, this is what we want to do. And because of that, they released great album after great album after great album. Highly underrated, the damned. But one of them, I would say one of the most underrated bands in rock fucking history. 
But before we get into the story of the damned, let's acknowledge our sources. The first is Smashing It Up, A Decade of Chaos with the Damned by Kieran Tyler, while the other is The Damned, The Chaos Years by Barry Hutchinson. Now, you read both of these, right? I did. I did. Uh, but first of all, Smashing It Up uh, the by Kieran Tyler. Now, that's a book that's uh, going to be more superior as a main source for right. us because the uh, the second one, Barry Hutchinson, he he wrote this book. It's uh, it's really interesting. There's a it's a fun read, but it's also made by a super fan. And even though he has put out some important materials on websites and online and and in this book, it it doesn't really corroborate perfectly well. So we're right. gonna have to choose with what goes best. So we go on online on interviews. We check out uh, what the other what, what the members of the band have to say, and also we use a lot of the source materials from uh, John Savage's uh, England Streaming, right. which is the, uh, the the bio book on Sex Pistols. Yeah, which. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tome. It's a tough read. Yeah. <laughs> it is packed with information. Yeah. And also, I would like to clarify something here. Carolina does most of the research <laughs> for the show. I've been <laughs> meaning to bring that up, Marcus. <laughs> I mean, and also, like, thanks, everyone, for the extremely kind comments that we've gotten on the show so far. But, you know, everyone is saying, like, Marcus, you do so much research. Like, I do a bit, but <laughs> it's, like, Carolina that does the vast, vast majority of it. All right, here's your money. <laughs> now, The Damned have had, I think, five or six different lineups since 1976. And during the decade in which they released their best and most influential music, they had no less than three lineups. Ironically, though, the driving creative force behind the first lineup of The Damned and the one who wrote some of their most memorable songs wouldn't last past the second album. His birth name was Brian Robertson, but he would eventually be known by the decidedly cooler moniker of Brian James. It is cooler. It's much cooler. Well, Brian Ro uh, Brian Robertson was also the name of uh, one of the band members of Thin Lizzy. Oh. He didn't want to get confused with that because it was confusing when you Google it. <laughs> so he changed it to Brian James because he's like, there's a lot of cool Jameses out there. Like, oh, yeah. You know, uh, James Williamson. Jesse James. Oh, James Williamson. <laughs> he, he was really into, he was, as we know and we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. James Williamson from the Stooges, of course. Yes. When Brian James was 14 years old, he caught a local band in Crawley, just south of London. The band, who, you know, had a pretty Rolling Stonesy type of feel, were called Monty Cavan and the King Bees, which is the first of many goofy band names you'll hear in this <laughs> series. Out of all of the scenes, I don't know what it is about the UK, but they had the goofiest fucking names. Uh, we, America also <laughs> takes credit for a few of those, too. Let's just go. I mean, it's it's like a fucking scene from Spinal Tap. Like, here's like a couple of the names that were mentioned in Smashing It Up. Mustang Stampede, The Wild Angels, Johnny Moped's Assault and Buggery. Fuck, I actually love that one. That one's kind of fun. The Stinky Toys. That's actually, <laughs> The Stinky Toys is my favorite. I fucking love The Stinky Toys. Masters of the Backside, Schoolgirls Underwear, Slack Alice, Tart, Black Witch Climax Blues Band, Genetic Breakdown, and Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers. <laughs> Don't forget uh, Ducks Deluxe. <laughs> And my favorite one, American band who came over to play some pop rock in the uh, UK, Eggs Over Easy. <laughs> they were looking at a menu. <laughs> I swear to God, that is the story on how they got their band name. But 
It was from Monty Cavan's guitarist that Brian James first learned the kind of guitar that would lead him to write one of the seminal albums of the early punk generation. Just like bands such as the MC5 and the Stooges, along with countless others, the musical education came partly from the blues. In Brian's case, it was Howlin' Wolf's Smokestack Lightning. acoustics in that bowling alley sounds amazing <laughs> well that's the thing about the blues is that it's like the skeleton key to punk rock music like so many of the early guys you know that ended up influencing like the later punks like it all starts with the fucking blues and i hope in the future like we might do a full season on the blues we should we really should because yeah. it's a, yeah i'll start today <laughs> yeah you need to, we both we need, need to start, start today, today. <laughs> it's like i gotta passing knowledge but <laughs> fuck man that's that's a history right there so a few years after brian was first introduced to the sort of music that ended up shaping his future he just like iggy pop started playing in bands with a decided blues bent like the aptly if embarrassingly named blues crusade but the band that seemed as if it might gain a little traction was train <laughs> <laughs> not drops Meet of d- <laughs> Not that train. Different train. Train was Brian's introduction into the record business, because Train did manage to record and release a single, even if the label, for some reason, decided to release it under the band name Taya Condoroga. Actually, that was David Blackman, who was the saxophonist in the band. That was actually his idea, because he he had all the connections to get them gigs and stuff. Uh And when they went in the recording studio, I guess he kind of like took over, which... We'll see time and time again, Brian James being in the band, he was happy enough to be in a recording studio, but he wanted to do his own thing and not have someone lord over him like that. Yeah, and that happens a lot in the studio. You get When you go into the studio, you get like one guy that says like, all right, guys, now that we're here, I got it all figured out. I'll I, go do the talk. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what to do here. No, no, no. Not going to listen to any of you. I got the fucking answers, guys. <laughs> Follow me, and we are going to hit the big time. Hey, where did Brian go? <laughs> now, the A-side to this single with Train was a pretty unimpressive cover of a forgotten American hit named Witch Tie 2, which I've never fucking heard before. But the B-side, Speak in My Mind, is actually pretty fucking good when it comes to 1969 British rock. I'm gonna be free someday, I'm gonna be free to go just where I please when I wanna go.
guitar you heard was an 18-year-old Brian James, already years ahead as far as guitar technique went when compared to a lot of the other musicians who were going to make up the punk scene in the UK. Furthermore, Train did manage to play with some of the more impressive bands at the time when it came to pure musical talent. In 1969, Brian James and Train played a series of shows opening for King fucking Crimson. starting to realize how many of these bands use saxophone. There's quite a bit. <laughs> it was really big in the late 60s, early 70s. I'd never thought about that before, but <laughs> God damn, there's a lot of saxophone. <laughs> but as it'll go again and again with the members of The Damned and with members in just about every successful rock group there's ever been, this project fizzled out pretty quickly. It was just, all right, just didn't work out. Once that band fell to the wayside, though, James got a hold of a newly released album that changed the way he thought about everything when it came to music. In 1970, Brian James was one of the lucky few in the UK to get a hold of a copy of Funhouse by the Stooges. Yay! Yeah, which, you know, we talked about Funhouse a lot. Yeah. And from there, he discovered, you know, the MC5 as well as Lou Reed and all those other guys. Blew his fucking mind. But the thing was is that, like, he was one of, I don't know, a few hundred... To get a hold of that album in the UK? Yeah, because, I mean, back then, like, it was kind of hard for a, a lot of people to get the UK distribution. It was imports, um, yeah. Yeah, the imports, of course. And also, like, Brian James found out about the Stooges just from a party, which is like what a lot of kids those days did. He, they, they play a record at a party, and he's just like, I need to get that. I need to scour <laughs> all of London to get that. Yeah. So after digesting all this new music, Brian decided that any band he'd be a part of in the future would without a doubt carry the same torch of uncompromising fury and straight-up art that these American bands were holding. And this new attitude was perfectly captured in not only the style, but also the name of Brian's next band. Bastard! <laughs> Bastard. Bastard. <laughs> I know, because of that name, they couldn't book a gig. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, it di it did limit their uh, it did limit where they could play. Yeah, uh, they only were able to play a couple gigs here and there. Uh, the opening for the Pink Fairies because they were friends with the road manager, and and that was pretty much it. So that at that point, it just they weren't going to go very far. No, I mean it, it was. I appreciate that they named their band Bastard. It's uh, a cool name. <laughs> it's a fucking great name. Uh, but yeah, it definitely did limit because you know. Remember, this is nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy in the UK, and people were not as open minded as they are. Well, I wouldn't say not as open minded. People cared. People don't care about that shit anymore. Right? No, I mean, Anal Cunt has made how many <laughs> records already? Yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's not as big of a deal. But back then, naming your band Bastard was a big deal. But as Bastard moved forward, the vocalist was transferred to Brussels for work. So Brian was faced with a choice. 
break up the band, or move to Belgium. So, since Brian knew that all the bands he loved, like the Stooges and the MC5, were all adored, at least in France, he figured, ah, France, they love them in France, fuck it, let's try Belgium, he went. Now, success did not come there either, but it was while he was in Belgium that Brussels got a visit from the New York Dolls. Brian did get to meet the New York Dolls. Oh, that's cool. In Belgium, yeah. I mean, he heard that they were coming in to, Be- to Brussels to do a TV appearance. So he just kind of walked up to the studio and just started talking to them. <laughs> he talked to Syl Sylvain about having not having to tune his guitar <laughs> because they're pantomiming the whole performance. Oh, man. Well, that... Man, the whole pantomiming performances thing, like, we'll we'll get into that later, but, you know, but I think a lot of people talk about, like, Nirvana not playing Smells Like Teen Spirit when they were on Top of the Pops in, like, 1991. They were not the first band no. to refuse to pantomime, because that's what you used to have to do when you played on, like, a European TV or British TV, like, you had to pretend... Like you were playing. You had to lip sync and you had to pretend and all that. And a lot of these punk bands just went, nah, nah, I'm not nah. going to do that. <laughs> like that's a, I sound that's shitty then, happen. I'll sound shitty now. <laughs> now, this is the third series in a row that we've mentioned the dolls. And this won't even be the last time we mention them on this episode. That's because the influence of the New York Dolls on punk is damn near as big as the Stooges. Yeah, the New York Dolls, as we talked about before, they were a rock band. They mm. started in the in the early 70s, and the members, all of them, very, very New York, representing all the boroughs of New York City. Yeah. Yes, but they made it huge over in England as well, as we know. I mean, they recorded uh, two albums, one of them amazing, the other one an album. Hey, come on. It's- too much too... Er- too much too soon. It's it's good. Yeah, too much too soon. It's fucking. I there's like at least six or eight. I mean, it's not as good as the first album. The debut. It's not quite as good as the debut, but too much too soon is still pretty fucking good. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. And but what they were also mostly known for like their outlandish, you know, behavior, their performances, like dressing up in women's clothing, wearing makeup, you know, just just like a party with awesome hard rock songs. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about what the New York Dolls looked like, just look at 80s rock bands. Look at Motley Crue. Look especially like Poison. And uh, definitely the bassist for the New York Dolls, he did not enjoy seeing all those bands getting big in the 80s. (laughs) We were doing that already. (laughs) I mean, go watch the documentary uh, New York Doll about Arthur Kane. I mean, it's it's fucking great. And I I hope Arthur Kane made it to Mormon heaven. Uh, <laughs> Let's all hope so. But it's 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 very good. But yeah, their their style was yeah. I mean, it was the all of the the bands in the eighties, the you know the glam rock bands in the eighties definitely stole the New York Dolls style. But the music of the New York Dolls is 
also just fucking fantastic. It is great. The the songs are great. It, it is uh, not just theatrical, but it's also like good hard rock music. Yeah. The songs were fun and fast and hard, but it was their style that set them apart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the dolls they're they're influenced both musically and stylistically uh on both the American and British scenes is fucking gigantic. But the thing is about the New York dolls, they all had long hair. You know, that that yeah. was uh, yeah, and that was something that was kind of a holdover from the 60s. And when it came to the look that people like Brian James were going to adopt, that came from people like Lou Reed. Brian saw Reed in Belgium in 1974 and said that Reed, with his hair dyed blonde and cut short, looked like, quote, a giant junkie monkey. <laughs> <laughs> little Lou Reed? <laughs> I do imagine Lou Reed with the little symbols. And <laughs> like the monkey shines monkey. <laughs> So in 1975, Brian was back at his parents' place in Crawley, flipping through the latest issue of Melody Maker. He was just there for a visit. Now, Melody Maker, we mentioned a couple times before, was a British music weekly that sold almost 200,000 copies a week. Very popular. And although they certainly publish reviews, we've read a couple already, the truly important part of the magazine was the Musicians Wanted ads in the back. As Brian James scanned the ads, he saw one in particular that caught his eye. It said, quote, Lead guitarist and drummer for band into Stones slash Stooges. Decadent third generation rock and roll image essential. New York doll style. Michael, 272-9687. Ooh, what's that number again? <laughs> 272-9687. I, I, I got an essential rock and roll image. <laughs> <laughs> well, the man who placed that ad had already run it twice with no real results. And although his name was listed as Michael, his friends called him Mick. His last name was Jones. And within a year of placing this ad, he would be the lead guitarist in The Clash. Oh, Mick Jones! <laughs> <laughs> It's a great song. <laughs> it's such a great song. No, they did covers well. They did covers. Yeah, you know, that, I Fought the Law, Police and Thieves. Uh, yeah, they did so, Straight to Hell. Like, so many fucking great covers in The Clash's repertoire. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Now, upon hearing a tape of Brian's band Bastard, Mick Jones immediately knew that this was the right guy to work with. So Brian went back to Brussels, told the other members of Bastard that he was out. Goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) And he started London SS with Mick Jones and Tony James, who would later go on to co-found a band with Billy Idol called Generation X. battle was won and lost down the bishops and last night. Spotlights pick the kids in triumph with a thousand scars in his life. See how they learn. With a swing from the terraces of black and white, young and old into a fight. Having fun. Cause I was six to five. Yeah, Billy Idol. Yeah, there he goes. <laughs> Billy is Idol. <laughs> yeah, it's a great thing to say about Billy. There he goes. <laughs> <laughs> I like Billy Idol. Billy Idol, look at him go. Look at. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time Brian got back from Brussels, he found that London SS had already acquired a manager. This dude, known the world over for his pomposity when it comes to who created British punk rock was named Bernie Rhodes. Oh, yes, Bernard. Bernard Rhodes. Bernard Rhodes. <laughs> he, he was a fashion designer. He worked for Malcolm McLaren. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're going to talk about it a lot. Oh, yeah, he'll come in later. Uh, but most importantly, he was uh, just uh, very famous for helping form the Sex Pistols, managing the, the Clash, a record producer. I mean, he was in it for, for this whole time. Managing That's why the he, Clash, destroying the Clash. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, he did work with um, Malcolm McLaren a lot, especially with his sex shop. And uh, just designing clothes. I mean, he he also kind of wanted to bring up this movement that he saw going around in, in the kids scene. Mm-hmm. But in a move that sounds ridiculous to us today, London SS had picked up a manager before they even had a fucking drummer. So another ad was placed in Melody Maker in December of 1975 that said, Wild Young Drummer Wanted. Must be aware of current New York scene and MC5 through to the Stooges, new energetic kids, 18 to 22, rather than seasoned pros with fixed ideals, although obviously ability essential. Immediate rehearsals based in central London must be dedicated and look great on the above terms. Phone 485 8113. <laughs> That ad caught the eye of a drummer named Chris Miller, who would eventually be known to the entire world by possibly the greatest nickname in rock and roll history, Rat Scabies, who would eventually be, of course, the drummer in The Damned. 
And as far as influences went, while Rat had grown up listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones just like everyone else, his biggest influence, as far as drumming went, came from an American single by Sandy Nelson from 1961 called Let There Be Drums. I mean, it ain't Neil Peart, but, you know, it's, it's pretty damn it's, good. It's really good. Yeah, it's great. It's like a, a surfy version of Dwayne Eddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Dwayne Eddy? <laughs> so at the age of 14, Rat left school like many members of the damn dead after both he and the administration decided that more school is just going to be a waste of everyone's time. It was a mutual agreement. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be here. We don't want you here. Why don't you just get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how much that happened in England in the 70s. In the 60s, I guess, too. But it was a lot of headmasters saying, like, please leave. <laughs> <laughs> so polite. <laughs> well, soon after, Rat formed his first band, Tart. And in 1970, he attended the Isle of Wight Festival. And even though they didn't know each other at the time, Brian James had gone too. And the highlight of the festival was by far Jimi Hendrix. Very far away. Takes a lot of to get If we travel by my Recordings actually from that show. That show had like I think the most amount of people ever. It was like six hundred thousand people showed up in this little tiny yachting community <laughs> where everyone just like with ascots were like, oh, dirty hippies everywhere. <laughs> I say. <laughs> So, in 1974, Rat, who'd pretty much just been drifting since leaving school, got a job at Fairfield Halls in Croydon, where it was his job to clean up the floors, as well as help out here and there, setting up the stage for whoever happened to be coming through. 
Now, Rat was a particularly terrible employee, as could be expected. He was fired, or should I say, sacked. Yes. After, <laughs> after only four weeks for showing up drunk one morning. But it was at Fairfield that Rat made friends with the guy who was in charge of the toilets. His name was Ray Burns. Director of Toilets. (laughs) (laughs) And although the two didn't know it at the time, their fates would become inextricably linked for decades to come, whether the two of them wanted that or not. (laughs) 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 But we'll get to Ray Burns in a bit. Now, Rat was, of course, still drumming, but he'd sort of been treading water, playing in bands that were, again, more influenced by guys who had themselves been influenced by the blues, players like Jeff Beck. And that whole fad was starting to lose its luster. Because it was a fad. Like, both here in America and in England, you know, white guys playing the blues was absolutely a faddish type thing. But what Rat was really getting into at this time were bands with a little more edge like the Heavy Metal Kids, Dr. Feelgood, and the aforementioned Pink Fairies. bunch of bikers come in and they're like we're here to see the pink fairies (laughs) i like it i like it i mean the pink fairies uh from what i can surmise sound like a a fantastic live band because that was a live recording i was like live in finland 1971 uh but the pink fairies like they're one of those live bands that just could never quite get it together enough to record an album like they recorded some tracks you know that uh, eventually made an album i think in like 79 80 somewhere around there like many years later but it just doesn't capture that feeling and that sometimes that just happens you know unfortunately yeah. with bands now chris had been wanting to make a change and he'd gone on a few melody maker auditions but usually there would be dozens if not hundreds of drummers competing for the spot at every audition he attended but the ad for the wild young drummer placed by the London SS had been running every week for an entire month, which Rat took as a sign that they hadn't even come close to finding the right person for the job. I mean, they'd been auditioning people, but nobody was quite right. And the funny thing about the ad is that it was almost asking the impossible when it said, must be aware of the current New York scene. Although Bernie Rhodes had the resources to be familiar with the New York scene, he could fly to New York see a few shows and come back, it hardly even existed on record at that time. I mean, there were, of course, two albums out by the Dolls, you know, that had made it to the UK and to Europe at large. But in 1975, when they're talking about the current New York scene, the only releases coming out of New York were two singles. 
One, released by Terry Ork, whom we mentioned on our Suicide series, was Little Johnny Jewel by Television. And I fucking love this track. (laughs) Now Little Johnny Jewel Oh, he's so cool He had no decision He's just trying to tell a vision Thought this was sad, and others thought it mad. They just scratching the surface. JJ could do the floor kiss. Or was he on display? Never noticed how Can influenced that song is. Yeah. It sounds a lot like Can. Especially like (laughs) the German band Can. (laughs) Yep, German band Can. Yeah, it's it's very Iga Bamyasi. And the New York scene was being covered in the UK press, but without the imports, all anybody really had was information and photos. Like you could read about the Ramones, you could see pictures of the Ramones, but you couldn't fucking hear the Ramones. The actual music was still a bit of a mystery, but that all changed when the UK started getting copies of Horses, the debut album from Patti Smith. Still good live. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, we saw her two years ago. Yeah, something like that in Central Park. Yeah. Her her kids were the backing band. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, it was awesome. But even so, Rat Scabies was completely ignorant of what was happening in New York. So he called up the number and convinced Bernie Rhodes to give him an audition anyway, based on his assertion that he was indeed a wild young drummer. Yes. <laughs> well, Rat Scabies, he called up the number and he had. Bernie answered the phone, and within minutes, they're arguing. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a funny thing, because Bernie is like, well, what do you know about the New York rock music scene? And Rat's like, how the hell am I supposed to know about the New York rock music scene? I clean toilets. <laughs> and so Bernie's like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, can you come in for audition? Like, where do you live? Uh, t- 
uh Gatwick Airport? <laughs> what? You live at the airport? It's a lot of places. <laughs> Just, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Yeah. So he goes to the audition and Rascabies, he shows up in this like long overcoat and Doc Martens and he's like itching and scratching a lot. <laughs> and the other members, you know, like there was like Mick, Tony and Brian. They're just like, what's wrong? It, He's like, what's wrong with what? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I just have a bout of the scabies. <laughs> ah. Just a bit of the scabies, lads. Nothing to worry about. So Rat, <laughs> Rat looked gross to them. <laughs> so much so that even Bernie Rhodes like put some like newspaper on the drum stool <laughs> when he's like, have a seat. <laughs> and what Rat Scaby said about the whole audition is like, he's like, everyone just seemed too cool and really aloof and everyone's kind of a jerk. Yeah. But I guess that was part of like what, how you have to act. Yeah, it was it was definitely an act. They weren't paying attention to him. They weren't. They were just like, yeah, whatever. I guess we'll play some songs. Yeah, they had the TV on <laughs> the whole time. But w the TV being on, that was fortuitous. It did work because Brian James started playing along his guitar to uh, the the TV was like playing like a war movie, like an old war movie. Yeah, like a World War Two movie. So like when the like the planes were like dive bombing and everything, Brian James would be playing with his guitar alongside with the with the movie. Yeah, like. Yeah. And then Rat Scabies just, just started joining in on drums. And then, like, that was it. That was when uh, Brian James thought, like, this guy is amazing. He's smashing up the drum kit. Yeah. He is going nuts and wild. Meanwhile, the rest of the guys, Tony and Mick, they're like, yeah, um, yeah. You know what? We'll just keep him for a few rehearsals until we get a better drummer. Yeah. And what Brian James was thinking, I'll keep Mick and Tony until me and Rat find a better group. Ooh, lots of planning. <laughs> so how did he get the Rat? So, well, okay, so we know about Scabies, because he had Scabies. Yeah, pretty simple, <laughs> A to B on that if one. If you live in a tunnel, that happens. <laughs> but Rat was because uh, the next rehearsal that he came to, a Rat actually ran into the rehearsal space, <laughs> sat behind the drum stool, and then uh, Tony James comes in with a brick and drops it on the on the poor, poor rat. Yeah, but, well, I don't know. Not that poor. I, I, I see a rat. I'm going to get rid of it. I, I know, but... Yeah, it, <laughs> we'll discuss this later. We'll discuss this when we get home. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, oh, you're in trouble now. No, but... So that's when they started looking at this poor dead rat, and they're just like, you know, he kind of looks like you, Chris. <laughs> rat Scabies was born that day. Perfect. So, with Rat in the band, the London SS got to work. Or at least Rat in the band temporarily. Problem was, there wasn't a whole lot of chemistry when you put all the guys together. Because like I said, on one side you had Tony James and Mick Jones. On the other, you had Brian James and Rat Scabies. And it all pretty much just came down to Rat Scabies. Like, they just said he didn't look right. Yeah, apparently you have to look right. You have to look the part. Yeah, and but that's that's so fucking dumb because Rat Scabies is such a great drummer. Well, that's the thing that we're going to see in The Damned over and over again is just because if they don't fit exactly how you want them to look or act or s seem to appear to you, then what, Then we're not going to call them punk. Well, yeah. that, that's a bunch of bullshit. It's a lot of bullshit. So as the London SS wound its way down... Brian went with Bernie Rhodes and Mick Jones to a show at a warehouse in Butler's Wharf on Valentine's Day, 1976. And it was there that for the first time, future members of the Damned saw the Sex Pistols. <laughs>
You know, the funny thing is, I actually, the first time I heard a version of that song, Green Jelly. What's Green Jelly? You missed Green Jelly, because you were in Mexico, and I don't think they made it down there. Green Jelly was like a joke band that did the song The Three Little Pigs. The little pig, little pig, let me in. Not by the hair of my... You don't remember that at all? You look crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a minor rock hit, but I loved the album, and they did a song on their first album, Anarchy in Bedrock, where they <laughs> <laughs> rewrote Anarchy in the UK to be about the Flintstones. Sounds, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this show that uh, they got to see, Brian especially got to see at the Valentine's Day, uh, that was 1976. Mm-hmm. This was this show was hosted by Andrew Logan, who ran the Butler's Wharf Studio. Because Andrew Lo- Logan was an artist, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he did a lot of performance art too. And he curated to the uh, London social scene, the, the elite, the bohemians, the artists. Oh, uh, yeah. Of, of the time, right? So Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood convinced him to throw a party so they could play, so the Sex Pistols could play that night. Mm-hmm. So Andrew Logan's like, all right, I guess let the people come in. <laughs> and it just started packing it up with people. Con- tons of people started going in. You know, Andrew Logan's like freaking out already. Like, this is a lot. Mm. All right. So the Sex Pistols go on. And Johnny Rotten is high as fuck yeah. on tons of acid and speed and playing no fun, a cover of no fun, over and over again. <laughs> and decided to start smashing up the stage area and throwing equipment around everywhere, just ripping clothes off this woman. I mean, it was so... Meanwhile, Andrea Logan's like, just put a coaster on it! <laughs> but that was the whole point. It's like... Yeah. It, uh, I think I read somewhere they called it style outrage. Yeah, style outrage. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Now, whether you love, absolutely fucking despise, or just don't get the music of the Sex Pistols, and I understand any one of those three opinions, the true impact of the band, both in the UK and in the world at large, is mostly cultural, and that's somewhat by design, depending on who you listen to. See, out of all the bands in this scene few have been obsessed over, argued about, and minutely dissected as much as the Sex Pistols, making their story an absolute fucking mess of contradictions and conflicting opinions. So we've read. <laughs> we know we know very well now. Yes, we absolutely have. Yeah, we've, we've read and why like watching Filth and the Fury and all that shit. Like it's everyone has a different story when it comes to every fucking minute of the Sex Pistols career. But since they're absolutely vital to this story, we can do somewhat of a long story short here, at least according to England's Dreaming, which, while it is entirely too long at 700 fucking pages, it's still considered to be the definitive account of the Sex Pistols, even if they do completely dismiss the damned. It's insane how dismissive these people are of the damned. Well, yeah, because they do they do mention the damned, of course, because they have to. They're they all to. intertwined into each other. But that's what it seems like. It seems like they all mention the damned because they feel like they have to. It's like the cousin that they don't want to invite. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We have that cousin. Yeah, we all do, yes. But, uh, and and it, it may sound like it's unfair, but I understand this is a book on the sex pistols. Yes. So, yes. so be it. So be it. Well, really, the Sex Pistols story all starts with a man that we've mentioned a few times before, Malcolm McLaren. Building off the aesthetic of the New York Dolls, fetish clothing, and a bizarre, short-lived UK rock and roll style known as the Teddy Boy. (laughs) It's so creepy. (laughs) It's so creepy. Malcolm McLaren and 
fellow artist Vivian Westwood opened a clothing store that eventually came to be known as sex. And sex is like the foundation of all of this shit. Oh, yeah. It's the meeting ground. Yeah. But like you said, they were at first really into the retro biker look. You know, <laughs> some rock and roll nostalgia from the 50s, like teen rebellion style. Yeah. Like they were really into that whole James Dean kind of look. And it looked cool until the Teddy Boys started going like, oh, we're going to be racist now. Yeah. And the- then <laughs> and that kind of ruined the whole thing. It's, it's over now. Yeah, yeah. But so this is when they, they called it Let It Rock. Mm-hmm. And then also known uh, informally as too fast to live too young to die yeah that's what like 72 73 somewhere around there just about but it wasn't until Malcolm McLaren met the New York Dolls that he realized he was looking too much into the past and needed to make and sell clothes for like the now yeah he had finally found the style that he was looking for with the New York Dolls with like you know their crazy outfits and hard edge you see like any dude can look goofy wearing like knee high red boots of course a pearl necklace and scarves scarves everywhere <laughs> around your, your arms your waist your, your huge, neck yeah Yes, but sure. I mean, yeah, I guess a guy can look goofy that way, but they brought in the attitude. Yeah. That's the thing. With whatever you want to wear, if you bring in the attitude and the confidence, you know, the this is the best me, now that is cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Wear as many scarves as you want. (laughs) I mean, not all of the dolls looked fantastic. I mean, like... Arthur Kane looks like somebody's Uncle Arthur dressed up as somebody's Aunt Carol. Like- <laughs> yes, but, but there's an element of cool. Like, there's something about, uh, I, I guess, like, bad fashion sense creating it into good fashion sense that makes it somewhat fun. Like, D. Antwerp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We enjoy their, their fun, like, uh, flashy style. That's they're, like, they're just like, oh, we just put this shit together, man. Yeah, even though it is... Highly calculated. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like like Dan Ford is highly calculated at every fucking level. But they're still great artists. Yeah, and, and so were the New York Dolls to a certain extent. I mean, mm-hmm. they wanted to do this. I mean, like, I, I remember when I was a teenager. or No, I was in college, and I used to wear, uh, the, you know, those. What are those wristbands that athletes uh, wear to wipe their sweat? Uh, sweatbands. Sweatbands. Yeah. yeah, I used to wear pink ones with my, like, going out Friday night outfit. Yeah. You know, and, you know, a lot, a lot of people did go up to me and say, like, are you, are you a tennis player? <laughs> but it was just something you wanted to try. Yeah, yeah. Something you wanted to do is like, I think this looks good. Let's fucking do it. Yeah, just try anything. I I, I did jeans over uh, underneath dresses all the time. <laughs> yeah, I wore a lot of dumb shit when I was in high school and college. Like, really. I mean, I was a thrift store guy. Are you calling so- me? My, my fashion says dumb. <laughs> Are you calling my fashion sense dumb? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, so after Malcolm met the New York Dolls and he realized this is what I want to do, he decided to like we got to rebrand everything. Yeah. We got to open up a new shop. So they did. They they refurnished the whole store and they called it Sex. Yeah. Now these clothes were black when people didn't wear black very often. And lots of sexy fetish styles, rubber, latex, all kinds of Fetish wear to wear on the street. Yeah. It was meant to call attention to be like subversive. Yeah. Yeah. Which meant really fucking cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Really fucking cool. I mean, everyone looked super fucking cool. Like all the ladies had their tits out. Like, I mean, like full on. Like when I say like had their tits out, I mean like nothing covering them at all. Like they looked fantastic. They looked cool as shit. Everyone looked cool as shit. But it's again, it's about the look. 
and not necessarily about the music. Oh, right. (laughs) Now, the myth is that Malcolm McLaren essentially created the Sex Pistols, which is why you'll hear a lot of people smugly calling them nothing more than a punk rock boy band. And while that is partially true, it isn't the whole story. The band came to McLaren almost fully formed, consisting of Steve Jones, Paul Cook, and a man named Wally Nightingale, who has become one of the more famous also-rans of music history, alongside Pete Best. Poor, poor Wally. Yeah. But back before they were the Sex Pistols, Jones, Cook, and Nightingale were petty criminals who acquired pretty much every piece of musical equipment they had through theft. They broke into Rod Stewart's home and stole a couple of guitars, including a Les Paul. They stole their drum kit from the BBC Studios. A strobe light was stolen from Roxy Music, and their entire PA was taken from the stage of a venue following a David Bowie concert. Okay, just so you guys know, these are not like cat burglars in like all dressed in black. <laughs> They're not, you know, running covert operations to steal all this shit. No. I mean, it's really usually they're like at a party. Yeah. And they end up in the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> and then they just kind of carry it out. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like really that It's like a it's like a gang of chimney sweeps. They're not what? Bond villains. Yes, thank you. <laughs> like, they're just kids. Like, yeah. they're just working class kids just carrying shit away. And with that stolen equipment, the boys formed a band called The Strand, named after a song by one of their many musical victims, Roxy Music. There you go. <laughs> so, like you said, like the sex shop was kind of a place where all the kids were hanging out. Mm-hmm. And that's how Steve Jones knew Malcolm McLaren. So Steve Jones like went up to Malcolm. He's like, hey, can you help me and my friends get some rehearsal space? Mm-hmm. And Malcolm's like, well, th- weren't you the guy who tried to shoplift at my store? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but like more than once. <laughs> Yeah, so how about it? (laughs) And it took a few months, but eventually Malcolm agreed. The cheek of these boys. Yes. So the early stages of the strand were Steve Jones, Paul Cook, Wally Nightingale, and soon Glenn Matlock. Right. Who worked at, he actually worked at the sex shop on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they started rehearsing together and playing like Kinks and Rolling Stone covers. I mean, they were trying to get, you know, their instruments together. They were trying to pretty much learn how to play they were a hundred percent trying to learn how to play none of them knew how to play except for wally except except for wally (laughs) (laughs) there's a reason why you don't know wally nightingale's name (laughs) oh Oh, you will today (laughs) well pretty soon malcolm mclaren was managing the group and by 1975 
he'd rebranded the Strand as the Sex Pistols, partly because it sounded cool and partly because it promoted his clothing shop. That's when he, uh, uh, right before he left uh, town, he printed a very, very wordy shirt mm-hmm. that had the loves and the hates, and underneath loves, it did say uh, QT and his Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. So that was like the beginning. That was the very, very beginning of what they would become the Sex Pistols. Yeah. But before McLaren fully committed to the Pistols, he went to New York City and completely ruined the New York Dolls in what many consider one of the biggest managing blunders in rock and roll history. All right. The New York Dolls <laughs> kind of did it to themselves. It was, I would say it's a 50-50 relationship. Yeah, right. Like, I, as far as as far as far uh, blame goes, let, we, let's go ahead and go 50-50. Uh, yeah. All right, all right. You, you get some and you get some. Yeah, Malcolm went to New York City because he was just bored. Mm. He needed to get out of England and he was fighting with Vivian Westwood. Yeah, because they were, they were together yeah. at this point, on and off for many years. Yeah, for a while. So he went to New York City and, by the way, he called New York a bit dirty. <laughs> because he caught an STD there. <laughs> Which one? Uh, I think it was crabs. Crabs. All right. Well, as far as STDs go, crabs. If you gave me a choice, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go for crabs. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know. We'll talk about it when we get home. We'll, uh, after we talk about the rat thing, we'll talk about which STD you would rather get. Okay. Yeah, that's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, he so he met up with the New York Dolls and he started dressing them in bright red patent leather outfits. Yes, he had Vivian like make these for yeah. them. And to make it more obvious, he made a big communist flag to put behind the band while they played. Like, I don't know. Does he expect like Mal to be in the front row of the shows? <laughs> See, I, I don't understand why he did any of this well because this is what he wanted to do he wanted to make a political statement he, yeah he tried he did try that with the sex pistols a little bit you know anarchy in the uk well, god yeah. save the queen uh, but the new york dolls are the most apolitical band in fucking existence he but he, he just thought like maybe if i give them a political point of view like maybe that can set them apart and make rebrand like the new the new new york dolls well i mean by this time uh like one of their their first drummer had died, unfortunately. Yeah, Billy, Billy, Billy Mercia. Yeah. Billy Mercia had died in England uh, because a couple of groupies had essentially killed him. Um, they suffocated him to death because he passed out. They poured a bunch of hot coffee. They put him in a bathtub, poured a bunch of hot coffee down his throat, and then just left him there. And he fucking suffocated to death. He was, what, 21? Yeah, he was overdosing. Yeah, he was overdosing. Uh, fucking, you know, Johnny Thunders was not doing well. Uh, Jerry Nolan was, I think he had gotten hepatitis by this point. Uh, yeah, like, Arthur Kane was drinking him, himself to death. I think they kicked out Arthur Kane by this point. Like, Arthur, because Arthur Kane was a horrible, horrible alcoholic. Real bad alcoholic. They put him into detox yeah. uh, for a while because he, I mean, he, he wasn't going to make it. Yeah. That's how bad it was. He needed a hospital. Yeah. I mean, it was at this point, it was pretty much David Johansson, the lead singer, and Sil Sylvain, uh, the fucking guitarist. Um, so they, they were not 
they were not doing well. They're not doing well. So that's why they're like pulling up these pants <laughs> in the dressing room. You're like, are you sure about this? And David Johansson, who was always like the nicer one, was like, don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think Malcolm can help us. Come on, guys. Come yeah. on. Let, let's rally on. Yeah. They're kind of trying whatever they can at this point. And it just fucking failed. Right. Because Malcolm like booked them at the Hippodrome uh, to play with television. And everyone just thought they were ridiculous. Yeah. And then Malcolm arranged a tour called the Red Pet and leather tour in florida which is like he's like don't worry i got you guys a bunch of gigs in florida by the way can we stay with someone's mom (laughs) yeah yeah i guess yeah Yeah, jerry jerry has a mom yeah jerry's mom lives there (laughs) but after like a week of shows jerry nolan and johnny thunders just got fed up they're like we just can't take this anymore this is miserable also they kind of wanted to score more drugs Mm -hmm. because that's what they were always trying to do they were like sending fans to miami to score drugs for them yeah until they got busted yeah (laughs) (laughs) Poor kids got busted. Yeah. So they eventually just, they're like, we want to go to New York. So Syl Sylvain, Malcolm McLaurin, drove them to the airport. Syl goes to the guys, what about the New York Dolls? And Jerry Nolan turns around and he goes, fuck the New York Dolls. Yeah. And that was it. The band was no more and there was nothing left for Malcolm in America. Yeah, I mean, until the New York Dolls played uh, a reunion show in, when was that reunion show? Like 2000, like... Four, two thousand five. So, I think it was around then because I remember I was in college when yeah when yeah, they yeah, came yeah. back yeah, yeah yeah we were both in college when they came back um, and they brought Arthur Kane back. Well, that's the, I mean that's the whole thrust of the uh, of the documentary New York Doll, uh, which is fucking great. It's Arthur Kane's journey, um, and it's on like it's on Amazon Prime. So it's uh, fucking it's I think it's only like an hour ten hour twenty. It's a great fucking watch. It's so good, uh, but. That time in Florida, like Arthur Kane and David Johansson didn't talk to each other from the argument they had in Florida until the 2005 reunion. Like it was 30 years of not talking to each other because uh, Arthur Kane also just fucking couldn't just despise David Johansson because David Johansson ended up getting a fair amount of uh, success in the 80s. Uh, David Johansson was he was in Scrooged. He was the ghost. Yeah. Of, he was the ghost of he Christmas past in Scrooge. Scrooge. Yeah, yeah, he was the the cab driver. That's fucking David Johansson. That's the lead singer of the New York he Dolls. He did a bunch of movies. Yeah, and he had a great career. Yeah, uh, he came out best out of everyone. Uh, first of all, having a career and being alive. Yeah. Uh, but I I think also because David Johansson back then in Florida he was he, he was a little bit arrogant. He is known as the nicer one, but arrogant. He went around telling everybody, "You're all replaceable." Yeah. And that that was like the straw. And he still comes off as pretty arrogant in the New York Doll documentary. I like him. I, I like him too, but he he's he pokes Arthur Kane a little bit too much when it comes to his Mormonism. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, Mor- like Mormonism saved his life, you know, yeah. from alcoholism. It, it works very well. It worked very very well for him because Arthur Kane, the basis of the New York Dolls, ended up working in uh, the family genealogy library of the Mormon Church, uh, and of course. David Johansson ended up doing this. Jump! 
strange career path, but he fucking made it. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's a fun song. I mean, I would imagine for our generation, that's probably the first time any of us heard like a 70s like New York punk singer actually sing a song. It's fucking hot, hot, hot. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah. <sighs> This is perfect. Relax. You booked a Verbo. Uh, you know, back to the story. Right. Back to the story. But what Malcolm came back from New York with, besides complete and utter failure, was the new style that the New York kids were sporting. See, since the New York artistic community was exceedingly poor, a lot of their clothing had to be held together by what else but safety pins. And that ended up becoming the central accessory for fucking UK punk. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, wearing used, torn clothes. If your clothes are going to fall apart, what do you need? Safety pins. Exactly. <laughs> like Richard Hell, for, uh, like Richard Hell, for example, right? Yeah. Like he would wear all these torn shirts, uh, leather jackets, really used, huge sunglasses. But, uh, but the torn shirts, I mean, like you would have to hold it together by what else? Safety pens. Yes, of course. And the cool thing is, like, you get all these old, used, worn clothing that you can grab anywhere. And just like Richard Hell did, if you need a Voidoid shirt, you know what he does? He gets a white shirt, old white shirt, Mm -hmm. and writes the Voidoids on it. (laughs) Done. Done. It's there. There's your merch. (laughs) But the other thing that McLaren came back with was the knowledge that the bands in New York, particularly, like, say, the Ramones, they didn't really know how to play. Like, it sounded cool. Yeah. But they weren't musically talented in a technical sense. And it just so happened that, like we said, the Sex Pistols were fucking terrible musicians. They didn't know how to play either. But that's what Malcolm learned. He was like, well, the Ramones are gaining this huge following already. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't need to be amazing musicians, which is why Malcolm McLaurin decided to drop Wally Nightingale from the band, who was a better musician than the rest of the Sex Pistols. But he did keep Steve Jones not so good, but he Steve Jones had that like raw energy. Yeah. I mean, Wally Nightingale was the only member of the band who could play. Like that. <laughs> and, and he's the one who has to go? <laughs> All they needed at that point was a singer. And while Malcolm had been in New York, a kid by the name of John Lydon had started hanging around the sex shop. I mean, it's funny to say the sex shop. It's a shop called sex. It's not a sex shop. <laughs> but, you know. Well, John, yeah. <laughs> John Lydon fit in with the overall style that McLaren was going for. So, to give him an audition, McLaren asked Lydon to sing along to a recording of I'm 18 by Alice Cooper.
So, you know, I read that John Lydon shows up and he's already like too cool for this shit. But he showed up. Yeah. And uh, they hand him a shower attachment mm-hmm. to use as a fake microphone. Like a shower head? Yeah. <laughs> they turn on the jukebox. Mm-hmm. They play the Alice, Alice Cooper song and they're like, all right, now sing along to it. Go. And he's just. Like, kind of nervous. He said he was very nervous. Uh, he's 18. <laughs> but eventually, he got his nerve, and he just started thrashing around, like, screaming around, and just, like, kind of showing the energy. They're like, yes, yes, that's exactly what we need. Can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> sounded fucking terrible. Yeah. Like, everyone said, like, he sounded awful. But McLaren wasn't going for technical. He was going for feeling, for rage, for sheer fucking violence. So, John Lydon, who was soon renamed Johnny Rotten because he never brushed his fucking teeth, he joined the Sex Pistols amidst an England that was very quickly falling apart. See, like we said up top, England wasn't doing too fucking well in the mid-70s. They were in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression, and besides being blown to bits in World War II, the British were coming to grips with the fact that they were no longer an empire after they essentially ruled the world for hundreds of years. Like, it's like, oh, fuck, World War II, we lost everything. Yeah. Fuck. (laughs) I mean, and there were, I mean, the, the, and there were like the death throes of all that shit, you know, like the Falklands Wars and all that. Like, there were some real bad shit happened when the British Empire ended. And as it happens with countries on the wane, a lot of the UK swung far to the right and all the wrong people started gaining power, like the famously cruel right-wing British boogeyman known as Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) Read anything in the 80s or listen to any music in the 80s coming out of the UK, uh, specifically like comic book writers in the UK in the 80s. Ooh, boy, they talk about Margaret Thatcher so much. But she was fucking awful. Like, she was really, really fucking terrible. What this meant was that the young people of Britain were out of work, miserable, and angry. And what Malcolm McLaren saw here was the perfect opportunity for a pop group that could capitalize on those feelings. And when people like Rat Scabies and Brian James started going to Sex Pistol shows in London, what they saw was the inspiration they needed to take their music to the next level. But it wasn't necessarily that the Sex Pistols were doing something so wildly different from bands like London SS, you know, the band that Brian James and Rat Scabies were in with Mick Jones and Tony James. Rather, what Scabies and James felt was a twinge of competition because the Sex Pistols were covering the Stooges. totally see where they're coming from with this like hearing the sex pistols cover the stooges and them going wait a fucking, fucking minute shit. that's <laughs> that's but our fucking band we're doing that. <laughs> but really the sex pistols biggest contribution was that they opened the door to all of these young kids to be able to act just as angry and snotty as they felt inside they're like oh those fuckers are doing it oh fuck yeah i can do that shit too 
I mean, here's what Rat Scabies said about the band. He said, The Sex Pistols were very funny. They were a cartoon. It was like a gang of grubby oiks on the other side of the fence with runny noses saying, Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, and? <laughs> it was witty, it was charming, and that's how we were allowed to adopt that attitude. But before Rat Scabies even thought about forming the Damned, he worked as a roadie for the Sex Pistols. And it was during this brief tenure that Rat started the most disgusting oh. trend <laughs> of British punk rock, gobbing. God, we have to talk about we it. We gotta talk uh. about gobbing. Of course, it's a, it's a gigantic part of the scene. You remember from our suicide episode? Yeah. They fucking gobbed... Alan Vega's jacket so much that it changed color. <laughs> and this is where that shit comes from. It comes, it's Ratscaby's fault. That's what, yes, he did say this in interviews. He's like, I know everyone needs a Patsy. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently that is me. <laughs> because it was at a Sex Pistol show in the Nashville rooms in London when uh, Steve Jones spat on Ratscaby's and Ratscaby's spat back. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, like John Belushi and it, it, Animal House food fights. <laughs> It was just it just went everywhere between the 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 audience and the members of the band just going back and forth. Uh, this thing called gobbing. Now. Yes, now, gobbing. It was supposedly, according to Rat Scabies, is like it was just for laughs, you know. But it became a thing for a while. It was a trend, and like for a while, when we say a while, we mean like a few years, yeah. where these fans would spit on bands yeah. to tell them, "Hey, we like you." Or to tell you, hey, we fucking hate you. Yeah. It actually didn't fucking matter. They just did it. Yeah. Because I don't know. I guess it was just a another way to be fucking awful. Unfiltered cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. I, th I think Rat Scabies in, in one interview was like very, like said in kind of a defeated tone, like nobody wants to be known as the guy who started gobbing. Like, I don't want that, but no. fuck, I guess I gotta be. I yeah. guess it's me. That's when it started. But the thing about Rat Scabies was that he was and still is a fantastic drummer, and Malcolm McLaren knew that. So when McLaren needed a drummer for a new band he was forming called the Masters of the Backside, <laughs> <laughs> he asked Rat. Well, the interesting thing about this band was that it also featured a guitarist who is now known as one of the great front women of rock and roll. Her name was Chrissy Hind, but she's better known as the lead singer of The Pretenders. Now the reason we're here as man and woman to love each other Take care of each other When love walks in the room Everybody stand up Oh, it's good, good, good Like Brigitte Bardot So you see, Malcolm McLaren, he already assembled the Sex Pistols, right? right? And they were off and running. And he wanted to create more bands like the Sex Pistols and just take over this entire new punk movement. Right. And he would 
meet like these interesting people at parties, uh, like like just the way he met Rat Scabies, mm-hmm. and try to put them together. Like that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to put people closer together. Like he came up with the Love Boys. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, Richard Hell, Chrissy Hine, you guys are gonna be the Love Boys. Chrissy Hine, cut your hair short. We're gonna make you a boy because <laughs> it's cool, you know. And then uh, I think Bernie Rhodes wanted to have Chrissy Hine with Mick Jones together for uh, schoolgirls underwear. Uh-huh. Uh, just so many ideas thrown into the fire. With all those band names that I mentioned at the beginning, I didn't make a single one of those up. No, those are all (laughs) real names. So Malcolm finally comes up with putting together a band called Masters of the Backside Mm -hmm. with Chrissy Hine on guitar because she didn't want to sing. Yeah. I mean, as we know, she's a great singer. Amazing singer, yeah. But she really didn't want to do that at that time. She wanted just to be around musicians. Right. And and just work on her guitar and Rat Scabies as the drummer. So they needed a bassist. Mm -hmm. So Rat called his former co-worker and party buddy Ray Burns. Ray Burns would soon be known by a name that would one day improbably sit at the top of the British pop charts. Captain Sensible. <laughs> He's like, I don't quite like that nickname, but it, but there it is. There it is, and that's what he's still known as today. Yes. Some people call him Ray, but most people call him Captain. And, of course, he would go on to be in The Damned, and he's still in The Damned to this day. Raised south of London, Captain also played in blues bands in the late 60s and early 70s. He started with a group called the Black Witch Climax Blues Band. (laughs) (laughs) Great name. Which eventually became Genetic Breakdown, which became Johnny Moped and the Five Arrogant Superstars. And they finally settled on Johnny Moped's Assault and Buggery. And that was the band that... Captain Sensible was playing with at the time that Ray Burns like called him up and said, like, hey, do you want to play in this project called Masters of the Backside? Now, as we said, Captain Sensible had worked at Fairfield Halls with Rat Scabies cleaning the toilets. Do you want to tell the you want to tell the turd story? No, I'm not <laughs> going to tell the turd story. <laughs> All right, I'll tell the turd story. Oh, All right, yes, <laughs> well, you take this well, one. The thing. I mean, Captain Sensible, he said... That he took great pride in his work. He did. did. (laughs) You know what? Good for him. Good for him. Nothing's beneath us. (laughs) He said he uh, once had a a turd. It was very stubborn. (laughs) Wouldn't flush. Wouldn't go down. So he went down to the kitchen, got a knife and fork, and chopped it up until it finally was small enough to flush down. Good. And what did he do with the knife and fork? Rinsed them off and put them back with the other cutlery. In Croydon? In (laughs) Croydon. People of Croydon. People. <laughs> Fairfield Halls. Stay away. Actually, they said Captain Sensible and Rat Scabies, they, they were great friends. Like, they would go off and they'd find, like, empty rooms to hang out in. And Captain Sensible would find, like, empty rooms to go play guitar in. They said they got along great, but they fucking hated the guy who uh, cleaned the walls. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they would smear it with all, like, this mud and everything. Because they thought it was hilarious. And, you know, even after they got fired from that job, uh, separately, of course... Mm-hmm. Uh, they went to. Uh, they both worked together for a building contractor who realized very quickly that they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> so he just had them demolishing walls, which they actually loved doing. I actually they loved ha- it. I had that job here in New York for a little while too. Like I, I did some work for a landlord in exchange for like lower rent, uh, and he just sent me to apartments that he was going to renovate and just had me destroy the whole fucking thing. That sounds great. It was great. It was awesome. It was one of my favorite jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this guy, Rat thought, was perfect for Masters of the Backside. It's like, let's fucking call up Ray Burns. But as we said, Chrissy Hine didn't want to sing. Instead, that task fell to two guys 
known as the Two Daves. That's right. Let's get not just one lead singer, but two. And both name them Dave. Dave. <laughs> you know like those uh, spy versus spy comics? <laughs> yeah, from that magazine. I love That's spy what versus. they look like. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. Uh, so Dave White uh, had dyed blonde hair and Dave Zero was all in black. Mm-hmm. So they were mirroring each other, white and black. And they rehearsed covers of, of the Trogs, I, I believe. I Can't Control Myself. Yeah, great song. Yeah, and, and other songs like that. I mean, they weren't really very good of course not. They, they, they were a mess playing together you know rat and captain pretty much said they did it because malcolm would give them food after rehearsals <laughs> christy wanted to work with musicians because you know she was tired of of writing music reviews on nme when when she was doing that for her time she wanted to be in a band yeah she was writing music reviews for enemy she was uh working at sex uh, a couple days a week like she just wanted to fucking play music but masters of the backside just it didn't come together. It no. just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't the right chemistry. And Dave White was just too shy of a singer. It, yeah. None of it worked. And even when Malcolm brought like his entourage to like watch them rehearse, uh, they all laughed at them. Oh man! And then the band kind of laughed back. <laughs> like we know, we know, we know, yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dave White just kind of disappeared, but Dave Zero, we're gonna get to him. We're gonna talk about him soon in a little bit. At, you know, as we said, Masters of the Backside, short-lived, never actually played a gig. And it was around the time that the Masters lost their steam that Rat Scabies, Brian James, and Captain Sensible started hanging out with a music journalist named Nick Kent. Oh, Nick Kent. Mm-hmm. All right, this guy. He was a music journalist. Uh, he worked for NME, you know, New Musical Express. Yeah, still that, still going to this day. Oh, yeah. He dated Chrissy Hine. That's how she got the job there uh, for a little while. And he was on the up and up with the music scene, right? Yeah. He, he's been everywhere. He knew everybody. And knowing he also knew Malcolm McLaren really well. So. But he was, yeah, he was in the Sex Pistols for like a bit, right? Or like he like played with them for like... three months. Yeah. <laughs> that was when Wally... Nightingale was kicked out. They're yeah. like, uh, d- everyone, Nick Kent is your new guitarist. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the band's like, all right. Yeah, fine, whatever. And then Nick Kent was eventually like, I, I, he got fired from the job, but he was happy he got fired from the job. He really didn't want to do this anymore. I mean, he was a little bit older than the guys. He was, and and Nick Kent also uh, got fucked up a lot. I mean, when you look at back, like it, yeah. you're hard pressed to find an interview with Nick Kent back in the '70s in which he isn't completely fucked up out of his brain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think he was always stoned on Collis Brown. Collis Brown's. Cough medicine, which was an opiate. Yeah, it, you can get have, from the pharmacy. It had laudanum in it. It was yeah, it was one of those where he would actually have to send. I think he sent like rat scabies or Captain Sensible. Like, can you go to the pharmacy to get me some of this cough syrup? And they're like, why don't you go? Because they won't let me get it anymore. <laughs> That's how bad a, of a drug addict he was at that time. Yeah. So Nick Kent asked Rat if he could help out with his band called the Subterraneans. Mm-hmm. Rat was down, and so he brought Brian and Captain on board with him. All right, so this is when Brian meets Nick Kent, and he's like, this guy is a cool guy, which really, not really. <laughs> I mean, he knew his shit, yeah. at the very least. Like, yes. he, he definitely knew his shit. He knew his music, uh, and he knew what was good. That's what Brian and Nick bonded over, was talking about the New York music scene a lot. And one day, Nick even gave Brian a sleeveless leather jacket that was previously owned by who else? James Williamson. Oh, from the Stooges. Yes. He gave it in exchange for a Quaalude, though. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Which Brian eventually gave the jacket to Stiff Baders much later on. Yeah, Stiff Baders from the Dead Boys. Yes, yeah. but no, this jacket is a jacket that, if you guys remember from the Stooges series that we did, when the Stooges only played one show in London mm-hmm. at the uh, King's Cross, that was the jacket that James Williamson was wearing that night. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's, Lo- that's just a fun little thing to have. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Nick got all three of the pre-damned members to go on a series of gigs with them. Uh, it was a festival of women in the arts in Wales mm-hmm. with Nick's new girlfriend as the singer. Oh, that's cool. I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was fine. I think Ratscavy <laughs> said, like, I, I think he said uh, the audience comprised of two men and a dog <laughs> at a women's festival. Now, this band with Nick Kent was pretty much the proto-damned. They were only missing one member. And it was at this show that the band debuted the song that would end up being the first punk single released in the UK. That song was New Rose. Is she really going out with him? Brian James uh, used like a lot of the riffs from his uh, bastard band days. Uh, band days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bastard band days. <laughs> yeah. He used a lot of the riffs uh, that when he wrote the songs for Bastard uh, into the songs for The Damn, including New Rose. Yeah. And I mean, there, there were quite, a, yeah. I mean, that's. That's the thing about uh, the the Dam's first album is that like a lot of these were songs that Brian James had been working on for fucking years, yes. years and years. It's partly why they were so goddamn good, and partly why the second album was so second album. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that in the next episode, of course. But so you had the Dam that were the Damned were almost together. You almost had the Damned, and of course the Sex Pistols were off and running. There was still one more band that needed to coalesce before the holy trinity of British punk rock was complete, and it would come from a genre of music known in England as pub rock. Pub rock. It's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Just playing in smaller venues, clubs and pubs, you know, dressed down bands. Uh, it, it, uh, Eggs Over Easy is a good example. Yeah. You know, the band I mentioned before. <laughs> uh, the advantage of pub rock bands uh, was that they could play quickly and record singles like with independent labels. Mm-hmm. Like they could do everything really fast as opposed, as opposed to like the big theatricals of like, 
David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, it was faster than rock and roll and a little harder than like traditional rock and roll, but not as hard as punk. Like it was kind of the bridge between the two. Like the uh, Elvis Costello uh, played like in pub rock songs back when he was still called Declan McManus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's really what it was. It was about the sound. It was about the live music. Yeah. And there are some pretty fucking good pub rock bands out there. Like I love Dr. Feel Good. Uh, the Vibrators were a pub rock band uh, before they, you know, went punk rock and started playing songs like Baby Baby, which is fucking great. But there was one pub rock band that stood head and shoulders above the rest, and that was mostly owed to the sheer presence of their front man. The band was the 101ers. The man was Joe Strummer, and he was soon to be the leader of The Clash. Although the 101ers did release one single before they disbanded that I fucking love called Keys to Your Heart. got their name from the address of the house where they were all squatting at the time because that's how fucking miserable London was. There were all these abandoned houses where nobody was living and so all these pub rock guys and a lot of these punks were just squatting in places. It was a, actually like a huge movement. It's very much covered in the uh, the Joe Strummer documentary, uh, The Future's Unwritten which is pretty good but I don't know, kind of changes your opinion of Joe Strummer like just a little bit. Well, you know. <laughs> you and I have had this argument for a yeah. while. It's a, it's a warts and all documentary uh, without a doubt. But on April 3rd, 1976, the 101ers played a show with the Sex Pistols at a London pub with a big stage in the back called the Nashville Rooms. This was the first time Joe Strummer saw the Sex Pistols, and right after seeing them, he knew the entire scene was about to change. And unbeknownst to the rest of the 101ers, that band was nearly at an end as a result. Yeah, because by the time that single uh, came out, they were done. They were already broken up. Yeah, Joe Strummer wasn't sure that he did the right thing. He did go around being like, are you sure I should be really going with this Bernie guy? Yeah. <laughs> this is a good idea. Yeah, it was. Actually, it was. It was a great it idea. Was a great yeah, idea. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the right decision. But this show was also partly responsible for the forming of The Damned. See, Brian, Rat, and the captain knew they wanted to start a band. The captain? The captain. <laughs> I just, sometimes I like calling him the captain. Oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, they knew they wanted to start a band along the lines of the Stooges and the MC5, but they didn't have a singer. So they figured if they were going to find one anywhere, it would be at this Sex Pistols show. Their first choice was a close friend of Johnny Rotten's named John Beverly, who would soon change his name to Sid Vicious. Okay. He, <laughs> first of all, he did not enjoy that name. Sid Vicious? Well, he did not enjoy Sid. Yeah. Because uh, Johnny Rotten named him after Johnny's, uh, named him after Johnny Rotten's 
pet hamster. Yeah. And, well, <laughs> and Vicious came from Lou Reed, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, from the, the song Vicious. Yeah. But there he goes. Yeah. And He's z- named after hamster. Yeah. <laughs> and Zip Vicious, for those of you who don't know, uh, re- eventually replaced Glenn Matlock in the Sex Pistols as the bassist, even though Sid Vicious uh, could not play bass and never learned how to play bass. Didn't have to. <laughs> Yeah, if you listen to, uh, I guess it's one of the big misconceptions about the Sex Pistols. Like, if you listen to the Sex Pistols' first album, that's not Sid Vicious playing. No. That's Glenn Matlock playing. Yeah. Uh, and most of the time when Sid Vicious played live songs. Why and, isn't it plugged in? <laughs> yeah. They, Why isn't my bass plugged in? Oh, they, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't plug in his fucking bass because <laughs> Sid Vicious couldn't play. He just looked good. He, he looked cool. Is this microphone on, Marcus? <laughs> it's on. Okay. I promise. <laughs> And the thing is that Sid just didn't show up to the audition with the Damned, or what would eventually become the Damned. But it was a guy who did. It was Dave Zero from the Masters of the Backside. His real name was David Lett. But once he joined the Damned, he took another name. Dave Vanian. As in... Transylvanian. We get it, Dave. <laughs> He's great. It's cool, though. I love him so much. He's so great. He's great. <laughs> uh, we're pretty much in agreement here. Dave Vanian is our favorite member of the dance. Yeah. Or David Vanian. Sometimes he gets very particular about that. Uh, my favorite quote about David comes from Lemmy. Lemmy from Motorhead, who said that Dave is, quote, remarkably normal for someone who dressed like Count Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) You should see the photos that he took with the band when they were touring New York City. It looked like one of those family photos that when you go visit the Statue of Liberty and then you have that one son who's going through a phase. Yeah, I mean, but it wasn't a phase. It was not a phase at all. I mean, like Dave Vanian had great fucking style. Yes, he, I mean, he appreciated the '30s horror films and, and silent German films where the actors painted uh, their faces white with blacked out eyes. He thought that was cool. Yeah, because they had to do that, so they would show up on camera. Like all of those old movies that you see, like if you were to actually just go there and hang out on set, everyone there, every actor would have their face painted bright white yes. with like black around their eyes to make it look better on camera. And Dave's like, this looks cool. Dave's like, this is awesome. 14-year-old Dave was down for it. Yeah. And he loved the, the dark gothic look. He's like very Victorian. That that was totally his style. Yeah. Uh, he had black hair, black clothes, makeup. Uh, he said he would get harassed on the train so much that he ended up buying a car. <laughs> <laughs> because he wasn't going to change who he really was. Dave Vanian. You're so cool. So fucking cool. Dave Vanian. The first goth. All you fucking goth kids out there, thank Dave Vanian every night before you fucking go to sleep. Yes. <laughs> so while the other members of the Damned were into the blues and such, David's musical influences were more psychedelic. I mean, he liked bands like The Seeds and Strawberry Alarm Clock. And as far as singers went, David was absolutely in love with the Shangri-Las. And he was absolutely correct. He was correct. <laughs> when I say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V. Here comes my
great. It's great. I, I mean, astute listeners, you know, have probably already surmised that the Shangri-Las were also a big influence on the New York Dolls. And, you know, there are other bands that, you know, took from the Shangri-Las, like uh, the Black Lips, uh, their album that uh, had, like, Katrina and, you know, Bad Kids and all that. It's called Good, Bad, Not Evil. Uh, it's fucking... I love the Shangri-Las. They're my favorite girl group like, yeah by far oh Fucking yeah love them, love them uh, remember leader of the pack <laughs> oh yeah leader of the pack's a great song yeah I mean, the, the, uh, yeah you know the funny thing is i listen to that song and i don't listen to the end of it because i don't want him to die <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing yeah the new york dolls were obviously into the shangri-la's cause, like the second track on uh, their first album is david johansson going you best believe i'm in love l-u-v like it's great i love it when you do that <laughs> Uh, do it around the house a lot. <laughs> and that's the thing is that David happened to see the New York Dolls on the same tour that Brian James caught the Dolls in 1973. Of course, David needed to eat just like everyone else. And in the mid-70s, Vanian famously worked the most goth job in the world. David Vanian was a grave digger. So cool. <laughs> yes, of course. I remember when you and I first, uh, not when we first met, because it took a long time until we really started talking. You know, mm-hmm. we just kind of, we were hey buddies. Yeah, like, hey, 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 hey. For a long time. But then eventually, I remember asking you when we first started talking before, right before we started dating, I asked you like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you said like a, like a, di- a grave digger or something. Yes. And I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember like quoting the line from a movie and you're just like, it's sort of like that. The, what's it called? Uh, you know, what's what's the name of that movie with Rupert Everett? Uh, Cemetery Man. Cemetery Man. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I don't like that movie. I love that movie. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you didn't say that then. Who knows what would have happened? I kept it to myself. Yes. <laughs> a little but, too cute for my taste. <laughs> but Dave Vanian, uh, he actually did go around to the cemetery grounds and he just asked yeah, to, be like, grave, to, to be a grave to be a grave digger yeah and the, they actually told him was like you're too small to be a great you don't have the core strength like you, <laughs> you can't do it but he eventually he came back and back and eventually they gave him a job and they loved him he did it for like nearly two years yeah he even they eventually gave him two cemeteries of his own to yeah. manage good for him <laughs> and he did this because you know first of all it, he thought it'd be cool mm-hmm. you know no one to bother him he'd get a nice workout mm-hmm. uh he could work when he wanted to and then head to the city and hang out yeah and where he would usually go when he hung out was Malcolm McLaren's shop back when it was just called Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. David's style piqued McLaren's interest and when David was asked if he was a singer, he just straight up lied and said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ray, if they ask you if you're a god. (laughs) And he just made up a name of a local band that didn't exist. It was just like, yeah, I was in the... Cheese wheelies. Actually, that sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) And that was how David Vanian ended up in the Masters of the Backside under the name Dave Zero. And that gave David the connection to Rat Scabies and Captain Sensible, who, as we said, were looking for a singer for the new project with Brian James. That's right. That's when we were talking about the one on er show, where at the sex when the Sex Pistols play, mm-hmm. Brian and Rat saw Dave, Dave Vanian, and they they like they looked at him and they're like, he he looks like a singer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, go talk to him. No, you go talk to him. All right. So they asked him to come in for an audition because they needed their new lead singer. He came in thirty minutes early because he knew that they were auditioning someone else. Mm. Somebody you said was Sid Vicious. That's right. But Sid Vicious didn't show up. 
And Dave Vanian was there. <laughs> and they're like, you. And he, like, he looks behind him. Oh, me. Okay, cool. And that's pretty much how it happened. Like, immediately he was in the band. Yeah, I mean, it's just, he looked good. He sounded fucking great. Because, like, Dave Vanian has, I mean, like, Dave Vanian's voice is fucking great. It's yeah. very, I mean, it's very original and it has over the years, like Dave Vanian's voice, like gets better Yeah, like, over, over time. Remember he wasn't a singer. Yeah. Uh, it, it, he was a, a little bit hit or miss in the beginning, but he really like honed that in as the years went by. Yeah. I mean, there are some sour notes here and there yes. on some damned albums. But you, who cares? Who gives a shit? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like it sound. it still sounds fucking great. Like without Dave Vanian, the damned are not the damned and so after the other three finished with their obligations to nick kent and the subterraneans they returned to london and the first iteration of the damned was born yes and that's where we'll pick back up for part two of the damned what 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 <laughs> we have to go now yeah we have to go now and i i know that we didn't talk about the damned like a ton on this episode like it's mo this episode was more about uh, you know the scene in general it's like it was more about like i mean we had to set the scene of like where this band was born but episode two episode three like we're gonna get into damn 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 we're absolutely gonna get into machine gun etiquette yes which neither one of us have been able to stop listening to over the last couple weeks while we've been doing this uh, we're gonna get into strawberries we're gonna get into the black album we're gonna get into phantasmagoria like, happy talk uh well <laughs> we'll get in the happy of course we'll get in the happy talk we have to we have to get in the happy but talk which i fun. didn't even fucking know existed before we started doing this series <laughs> and apparently everybody in england knows happy talk everybody it's in gonna be really knows fun. this fucking song none of us do but yeah we'll be getting we'll definitely be getting in the happy talk yeah i'm um, so excited for this i'm so glad that we uh went with the dan for a three-part series well that's the things that we were we were gonna do the sex pistols yeah uh and we started getting into the sex pistols and just didn't like we just could like we just night after night like we'd come to each other to, like after we were working in our respective offices and like come to each other and be like so you like them yet <laughs> <laughs> nope me neither and while I was trying to look for like you know background information trying to get like a feel for the whole scene you know I watched uh, you know the clash documentary and then I was looking at other documentaries and I saw Don't You Wish We Were Dead. Yes. Uh, which is the documentary about the damned. And it is, uh, it's one of the best music documentaries I've seen uh, in years. And within about five to 10 minutes of getting into that documentary, we just knew that we got to do the damned instead. Yeah. Because they're better. Yeah. <laughs> and, more, and more fun. And we, we like the music a hell of a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of fun over the next few episodes. All, all right. right. Thank y'all so much for listening this week. Remember, uh, every single show has a playlist to go along with it. Uh, all you have to do, I fixed it. All you got to do now is just type in No Dogs in Space uh, into Spotify, and the playlist for every single episode that we released comes right up. Uh, you can enjoy the music as much as you like, because ultimately that's what this show is all about. Uh, so uh, we'll see y'all next week. And... Uh, I don't know. Fucking keep on keeping on. No. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.
he a good dancer? What do you mean, is he a good dancer? Well, how did he dance? Close. Very, very close. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.